Hello, and welcome to another installment of the UB School of Management's Manageable Podcast. My name is Patrick Lagerin. I'm a second-year MBA student and one of the hosts of this podcast. This installment is by popular request of prospective and admitted students, particularly international students, concerning the process of coming to the U.S. and studying at UB legally. UB is a desired school not only because of the programs, but because of the opportunities it provides to international students. However, there are still government requirements that must be met in order to study here legally and be admitted to UB. And these legal requirements can be quite complicated and overwhelming the first time you hear about them. So in this first segment, we are going to hear from two international second-year MBA students that are studying here in the U.S. and hear about their UB experience. Additionally, we're also lucky enough to have a representative from the ISS here in the studio, or UB's Department of International Student Services. At the ISS, they answer questions and insist international students on a daily basis. Unfortunately, I'm not going to have a ton of input as I'm not an international student, but I believe, especially after researching for this episode, that I can empathize with the requirements that international students must conform to. We all come from different places, but what unites us is the value that we see in a SUNY education and our desire to study here at UB, and in our case, the School of Management. I'd like to introduce Shashwat Raj Singh, a second-year MBA student from India who's currently our GMA president, and Akshay Koltwar, a second-year MBA student from India who's currently the vice president of our consulting group and is currently the graduate assistant at the School of Management. So first off, Shash, why don't you give us a brief intro about yourself and tell us where you came from and how you got here. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Patrick, for organizing this session. Um, so my name is Shashwat Tarat Singh, and I'm in the UB MBA program uh, in the class of 2024. Uh, I just finished the first year of the MBA program, and the second year begins on this coming Monday. Uh, I am really excited and looking forward to the semester. The reason why I chose UB is because of it, its ranking, uh, its uh, its prestige all over the U.S., uh, and um, there are so many employers who, who prefer uh, UB MBA students, uh, and they come here for recruitment purposes. In addition to that, the cost of living and the tuition cost is relatively low. So for an international student like me, it's 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 very very beneficial. Um, I am currently the president of the GMA, which is the student governing body of the MBA program. I also work as the student assistant for the Office of Strategic Marketing and Enrollment Management. Um, I'm also a dean's student ambassador for the MBA program and a dean scholar. Um, and I'm very happy to give my inputs here um, and help all the prospective international students coming from all over the world. Um, I got my F1 visa through the USCIS change of status uh, through I-539. I'm going to talk about that uh, during the course of this podcast. Um, I want to become a product manager in the tech industry, and I'm concentrating in data analytics, marketing, and information systems and e-commerce. Okay. And are you part of that STEM program? Yes, I'm part of that STEM program. Um, the reason why I chose STEM is... Um, so. For all international students, uh, after you finish your uh, graduate degree program, you are allowed to work in the U.S. if you have a job uh, for one year um, on OPT. Um, but with STEM, uh, you have an option to extend that OPT by another 24 months. So all in all, you can work for 36 months in the U.S. after your uh, degree program uh, without any sponsorship. Okay, makes sense. And then we'll come back to the STEM program later Absolutely. and just go a little bit more in depth on why some people choose that. Um, next up, I'd like to introduce Akshay. Akshay, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you came from, how you got here. Thank you so much, Patrick, for having me here. My name is Akshay, and I'm the current vice president of the consulting club uh, at the UB School of Management. And I'm also serving as a graduate assistant at the admissions office, office of the School of Management. 
I came from India, specifically Mumbai, and I got here through the non-immigration pathway of F1 visa. Uh, I had to interview for the same at the consulate uh, in India itself, and I had to go through the visa process. Uh, I chose UB specifically because of the plethora of uh, experiential learning opportunity, opportunities it provides to students in the form of uh, corporate champions, in the form of leader course certification, uh, which not only focuses on the theoretical part of the MBA, but also enhances the personality completely and is a transformation program altogether. Uh, I am also pursuing the STEM program. Uh, the STEM MBA is a pathway for you to stay here in the US for three years and uh, seek H-1B sponsorship. Uh, my plan is to go back in the financial services industry uh, in the controllership uh, role and uh, pursue this further uh, to uh, leadership uh, from the leadership perspective. Yeah, makes sense. Thanks, Akshay. Um, last up, I'd like to introduce Jenna. She's a representative from the ISS. Hi, Jenna. Thank you for being here. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, like you said, my name is Jenna Lenz. I am one of the advisors in International Student Services, or ISS for short. Um, so our office, we work directly with all of our international students um, on F1 or J1 student visas. Um, we start working with students uh, once you are admitted and deposited. You might start getting our newsletters, um, information about our check-in, and our uh, welcome series for students. Once you're here, we help you with maintaining your status and applying for benefits. Uh, you know, we do some wayfinding. If you're not sure where to go, you can always stop by our office. We can help you find the right office. Um, and then, like it's been mentioned, after uh, students graduate, international students generally, if they choose, are able to work in the U.S. after graduation. Uh, so we continue to help students maintain their status and, uh, you know, report what they need to report while they are working on their F-1 visas. I've been in the office for about seven years. Okay. Um, you mentioned F1 and J1 visas. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of alphanumeric codes throughout this podcast. Um, can they? Can people contact you to get more information about these different things? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. So I do have some vocabulary we can kind of go over. We've heard some of these uh, alphabet soup words already. Um, but uh, yes, certainly our website is buffalo.edu backslash ISS. Uh, lots of information there about the different visa categories. Um, or you can always email us in our office as well. The information is on our website. Um, so the most common type is F-1 visa, which we'll get into, um, but you've heard the term USCIS already. Um, that stands for United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. Uh, they are the ones who process immigration benefits, um, like a change of status or work authorization, like OPT, um, which stands for optional practical training. It's one of the types of work you can do as an international student um, after you graduate or sometimes before as well. Um, part of ISS, um, we are DSOs, what is a designated school official. Uh, so that is someone who has access to the government database CVIS, um, and that is where we create the Form I-20 that all F-1 students have, um, which is an immigration document that you need for your studies at UB. Um, the other, you know, word you might be hearing is SEVP. Uh, that stands for Student Exchange Visitor Programs. That is an agency under the Department of Homeland Security. Um, SEVP is the agency that runs the CVIS government database, um, and they are responsible for a lot of the regulations that will be kind of touched upon, I think, here today. Okay, great. That's awesome information. Thank you. Um, another quick question about your department. Uh, how many full-time employees do you have? 
Yeah, so there are 13 full-time employees with us. There are six advisors, so um, international students, when they come in to talk to us or if they come to our advising, um, I am one of the six people that they will likely see. Okay, great. Sounds like you have a big department there. Um, so I guess we'll get right into the questions. Um, this is open to anybody. Um, so how can international students pursue a program at UB? Who needs a visa and what type of visa do they need? All right, I'll start this one off then. Um, so international students, if they are looking to do online program, obviously you don't necessarily need a visa. You might just be doing that online. Um, fun fact, I am doing one of the School of Management online programs starting the fall. That's great. Um, so I do know we have a, a classmate who's studying actually from India, but that's not neither here nor there. For coming to Buffalo, um, you would need um, likely a student visa if your primary purpose is to be a student here. Um, the most common is F1 student visa for degree-seeking students. Um, there is also J1 students, but that is a much smaller population, usually fairly specific, um, and that can depend on the length of the program. For example, um, if you're coming to study abroad um, through an exchange program, you might be on a J visa, but the vast majority of the students at UB who are international students are here as F1 students. And so the F1 student visa, is that a different approval pool than people just looking to move to the U.S. in general? Yeah, so if you're looking to the move to the U.S. in general, for example, if you have immigrant intent, so you're planning to stay here long term, maybe you're applying for permanent residency, um, or even someone coming on something like an asylum, uh, those are entirely different processes. Part of being an F-1 student um, at the visa interview, and we may touch on this, is you have to be able to prove that you do not have immigrant intent at the time of the visa. Um, so when you talk to the consular officer, they will ask for documents, and, and I know we talk about this later, um, but basically F1, your idea is to come here, study, get an American you know, university experience, get some industry experience if you want after you do graduate, um, and then depending on your path, you may go home, You know, the path may take you for like an H-1B worker visa, um, which again would be a separate visa process. Okay, understood. Um, so you can choose later to pursue staying in the U.S., but at the time of accepting, you have no intent to do so. Correct. When you apply for the visa, you should be able to prove that you do not intend to stay in the U.S. You know, forever. Um, but obviously, life happens. You might find a, an employment visa or you might meet someone and get married to a U.S. citizen, um, and that's understood. Okay, understood. But I quickly want to add to what she said. F1 is a non-immigrant intent. Like, you have... I mean, I have attended so many sessions organized by the U.S. Uh, embassy and consulate in India. Like they do, uh, um, I think, video uh, sessions every Friday or, or I think Thursday. I'm not sure about the exact day. Um, F1 is non-immigrant intent. No matter what your plans are in the future, but when you're appearing for an F1 interview, you have to sufficiently through evidence, uh, demonstrate that you have a non-immigrant intent and that you're going to come to the U.S. just as a student, just for your education, finish the education, and you have the intent to return to your home country. Okay. That's a really important detail to know. I would just like to insist on the fact for all the international students out here uh, listening to the podcast that uh, the F1 category is a non-immigrant category, wherein when you go for the interview, you have to establish the fact that you will be coming back to your home country. So irrespective of and irrelevant to your plans after graduation, you should insist on the fact that you will be coming back home to make sure that you get that F1 visa and you get that approval. Okay, thank you. 
Um, so my next question, um, a lot of people's first step into studying at UB is, of course, applying to the school and seeing if you can even get in. Um, but that's the easy part. So what are the next steps to take after accepting that offer from UB? I could take that as part of the admissions team. I get a lot of the, the questions in and around uh, the same uh, theme of it. Uh, first and foremost, uh, after accepting the admission, you, uh, you should make sure that you pay the tuition deposit and uh, make sure that you upload the supporting financial documents and the admissions form. Uh, it is super, super important, and I cannot insist on this fact, uh, that you must expedite in uploading these two forms. One is the financial form, and the second one is the supporting financial documents. Because only after this stage, this upload, your documents are passed over to the International Admissions Office, wherein they process your I-20 within four to six weeks. When we say four to six weeks, uh, that is a time uh, we are. That is a tentative time that we have taken into consideration. Uh, but it is an earnest request to all the international students to please keep patience. And uh, if if you're planning to come down to UB, make sure that you upload the documents timely so that you get the I twenty timely. And subsequently, you could go ahead and appear for the visa interview. Uh, as you as you may know or may not know, the I twenty is the most essential document for your visa interview. So without the I-20, you cannot go for the visa interview. And as we all know that there is the shortage of the visa interview slots that you get uh, back in India, Indian consulates. So we must make sure that all the students are uploading all the documents timely manner. Uh, and if that happens, you could get the I-20 timely. Okay, so just to clarify on that, after applying to UB, uh, the ISS would help you submit your I-20 and then you would get access to a visa interview which takes place in India? That's right. So okay. once the I-20 is issued by the, the UB, uh, the ISS office and the international admissions office, uh, the candidate appears for the in interview uh, by seeking a slot, a visa interview slot. Uh, before that, they have to fill out the DS-160 form, uh, post which we they go for uh, seeking the slot. There is always a shortage of uh, this interview slot, so the students have to make sure that they are always in chase of these slots. Once they get this slot uh, in respective consulate uh, back in India, there are uh, namely four consulates, uh, four to five consulates uh, back in India wherein they seek the interview appointment. And once they get the uh, appointment, they go and appear for the visa interview. Okay. Yeah, and just to clarify on that point, um, he's right, the financial documents are a requirement. We actually cannot, by regulation, give an I-20 until we have sufficient proof of funding. So part of being an F-1 student is being able to prove that you can support yourself financially in the U.S. while you're here for your education. Um, so that is something that you need for your I-20, so that's why um, International Admissions needs it. We are separate offices, International Admissions and ISS, but we do work together. Um, and so they will, uh, you know, use those documents to create your I-20, and then you'll also need that funding when you go probably for your visa interview as well. And okay. I have a quick question for you guys. Um, so what kind of financial documents are you looking, like, are, do, like does a prospective international student need? Like, is, just, is that a, just a bank statement or a passbook? Uh, is there any specific period that um, the UB looks at? That's a very good uh, point. Uh, so we look at uh, last 12 months of financial statements. Uh, the financial statements in the for, can be in the form of bank statement, uh, can be in the form of cash deposits, uh, fixed deposits. Uh, they cannot be any liquid funds which are uh, which are invested somewhere like mutual funds. Uh, uh, statements are not accepted, 
any any liquid money which is uh, stale and which is not invested and which does not have any risk associated with it uh, and uh, those those kind of financial documents are accepted all the accepted financial documents are mentioned as part of the financial form which is uh, which is available on all our websites uh, so once once the candidate fills the financial form they can go through the list of documents which are acceptable and accordingly plan for uh, the funding in in the same line yeah, and you know that could be a financial loan, specifically an educational loan. Um, there's a possibility of having a excuse me. There's also a possibility of having a financial sponsor. Um, so if you yourself don't particularly particularly have much money, you know you can, might combine funds, personal funds, family sponsorship. Um, you know sometimes government funding sponsorships, depending on what the case may be. Um, and then once you have the I twenty, right now we are able to electronically uh, sign as the DSO, the designated school official, and it'll get emailed to you or perhaps uploaded into your portal for access. Um, so you know as a student, once you get that, you're going to want to make sure you print it out, sign your name. Um, students should still sign in ink, um, and you'll need the information on there, like your CVIS ID um, for your visa interview. Okay. Thank you guys for clarifying that about the funding. That's a pretty important detail that people need to remember. Um, and Jenna, so earlier you mentioned uh, that a DSO from the ISS can access and help make the I-20. Um, so can we just take, take a step back and further clarify what is the I-20, who needs it, and where, who it's issued by? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the I-20, the, the full name is Form I-20, Certificate of Eligibility for Non-Immigrant F-1 Student Status. Um, so this is a document specific to F-1 students. Um, if someone is a J student, they have something called the DS-2019, um, but in this case, we'll focus on the I-20. So that is a legal document issued um, by a U.S. school like UB um, through that CVIS database I mentioned earlier. Um, so the only people who can access this database at the school are the DSOs. Um, so right now, the DSOs are only ISS advisors and some people in international admissions. Um, basically, before we can issue the I-20, the school has to confirm that the student is admitted for a full course of study and that they have sufficient proof of funding for the, their program. Um, any student who's planning to come as an F1 student needs to make sure, like we mentioned, you have that I-20 first that is needed before you can do the visa uh, application with the consulate or embassy. Um, it's also something that you need to have in hand for your entry to the U.S. Um, when you first enter as an F1 student um, and you get to the border and you talk to that border official um, with Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, um, they are expecting to see that I-20 in hand in addition to your passport and your visa stamp. Okay, understood. I have a quick question. So uh, is there a minimum number of credit requirements uh, that international students need to meet uh, per semester uh, like to become eligible to get an F1? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, you don't necessarily need to be enrolled and in fact can't be enrolled at the time that you have your visa interview, right? That's before you get to the enrollment stage of being a UB student. But um, once you're here, you need to make sure that you have a full course of study. That's part of maintaining your status. The default for that at UB is 12 credits per semester. Um, if you have an assistantship like a graduate or a teaching research assistantship, um, full-time enrollment is considered nine credits um, because you're doing nine credits plus your assistantship work. There are different cases where you may be able to do less, but in order to do that, you would need prior authorization through our office. So in general, you know, for F1 students, plan on either 12 credits each semester um, or nine credits if you have an assistantship. 
Is that credit requirement on the UB side of things or on the legal side of things? Yeah, so the full course of study requirement is a regulation. So that comes from the federal regulations. Um, Schools themselves have some jurisdiction on different aspects of full-time, like graduate assistantship um, or, you know, when students who are graduates get to later parts of their degree and they might be eligible for full-time certification. That's internal to UB policies, but the full course of study requirement is baked into the F1 regulations. Okay. Um, So other than the I-20, what documents are required for this visa application process? So I could reflect upon that uh, since I've been to the visa interview. Uh, It is recommended that the student carries uh, the I-20, the financial documents, the financial form, uh, the letter of uh, acceptance or the admit letter uh, to be precise, uh, and the proof of the financial uh, documents. So let's say if someone is producing a bank statement, uh, the student uh, is supposed to carry the bank statement with them. Uh, as a background uh, or in case the the visa officer asks for it. Uh, moreover, and mostly it happens that the visa officer will only ask for the I-20 and the passport. Other than that, they do not really verify any documents in person. Uh, in case they want to verify any documents, they could uh, issue you a, a 2221G, uh, which, is, which is a request for uh, further documentation or to prove uh, further documentation. So that's that's pretty much all that the candidate has to carry. And there's one more document um, that uh, is actually needed, which is so just as soon as you get your I-20 document, you have to pay at your service website and get a service fee receipt. That is a very important step. And sometimes people may overlook that. Um, so U.S. consulates and the visa officers, they primarily require and mandate that you have a valid passport. Um, and uh, a valid I-20 and a service fee receipt. And like Akshay said, that it's very essential for you to also carry your um, financial documents in case if you are being asked for that during the interview because if you do not carry them, uh, the officer might issue you 221G, which is the administrative processing, which further means that uh, you would require to submit those documents later, which may delay your visa processing. And also the CVS fee is required for us to be able to register your record once you get here. So if you don't pay the CVS fee, we can't indicate that you are an active student um, and that could actually end up leading to some a lot of trouble. So paying the CVS fee early is always a good idea. Um, you always want to make sure you're paying the CVS fee through the official website, um, which is fmjfee.com. Um, if you're not sure, you can come to our website um, or you, you know, look at the Department of State website. Unfortunately, there are CVS fee scams out there, so um, I would avoid paying a CVS fee through a third party or anything. I would go directly to the source. Okay. So now, 20 minutes into this podcast, we've mentioned a lot of different steps that we have to take. Um, does the ISS have any checklists that uh, students can go through just to make sure they've done every single step? Yeah, absolutely. Um, on our website, in um, On our website, we do have a page about the U.S. visa. Um, It has all the steps listed. Um, We link to this in a couple of different places. Again, buffalo.edu backslash ISS. This would be under the immigration and visa portion of our website. You can always email us as well, and we can send you the direct link. Um, But we go through the steps, um, starting with, you know, I think we've already talked about filing that form DS-160 online. That is the online visa application itself. Um, That's going to be all the detailed questions about you and your school plans. 
Um, you might be uploading a photo there. And again, I would print that confirmation and take it with you to the visa interview. Um, second step is going to be that visa application itself. There's probably going to be a fee involved for that application. Um, and depending on where you're from, there may be additional visa issuance fees as well. After that would be paying that CVIS fee. So that is the CVIS I-901 fee. Again, make sure you're paying directly from the official website. Um, and then for most people, step four is gonna be that visa interview. Um, that's gonna happen with the consular officer. There was mention earlier about applying for a visa waiver. Um, for, sorry, there was mention earlier about applying for a visa interview waiver. Um, that's something that's decided case by case by the consular officers themselves. Um, so ISS can kind of help walk you through those steps, but we can't tell you if you're going to be eligible for that waiver or not. Sure. That happens at the consular embassy. Okay, understood. That's a great segue into our next topic, which is the visa itself. Can anyone tell us a little bit more about the visa application and then what happens during that application from the start to approval? I could reflect upon that uh, since I've gone through the process. Uh, right after you get the acceptance, uh, you fill out the the supporting financial documents. You upload the documents uh, which are required. You get the I twenty. Then you the first thing that you do is you go with the DS one sixty, complete the DS one sixty form, pay the fees, uh, get an appointment. Now there are two appointments which are required by the candidate. The first appointment is the biometric. And the second appointment is the visa interview. Uh, when you're going for the biometric, uh, they usually take your biometric and the photograph, which is required on the visa. And uh, subsequently, you go for the visa interview, which is with the visa officer. Uh, now, this process is uh, kind of lengthy because of the fact that there is scarcity of uh, visa interviews and this, these slots are scarce and there are a lot of, a lot of scams in and around this. So uh, students must be really, really careful when they are actually giving someone money to access this portal and book the slots for them on their behalf. Uh, while, these, while these slots are scarce, it is very important for the students to know the fact that if they are proactively planning everything in advance, they can definitely get a slot well in advance. Uh, so it's, it's all about time uh, and it plays a very pivotal role in this journey. Uh, it just not ends there. Uh, the further steps uh, after uh, you're done with the visa interview is just wait uh, and hold for your passport to come back. Uh, and uh, then you have two options, basically. Uh, you could go and collect the passport uh, from the consulate or you could uh, have them delivered uh, it to your home address. Um, for those who are at the nick of time, who have uh, scarcity of time towards the end of the uh, and to the commencement of the program, and uh, if they are in the hurry to leave India, uh, it is advised that they collect it because in that case there is no dependency on the on the courier or the parcel uh, guys uh, in between. So that's that's how the process plays. And to add to what Akshay was saying, um, he raised a very important point uh, about being scammed. Uh, and it's not just for international students from India, but but from all over the world. Um, if we, if anybody needs any information, they have two more most important resources. Reach out to the uh, ISS office, um, ask them for any clarity, or visit the website of the U.S. government, uh, the U.S. Embassy and the consulate in your, in your specific country. And in recent times, um, the U.S. consulate and embassy have pages on Twitter and Facebook, and they constantly post uh, updates about the visa uh, appointments and things like that. And 
earlier, it wasn't the case that uh, there would be visa shortages. I think due to COVID, there have been a lot of uh, processing time, uh, backlog of applications. So that has resulted in uh, limited availability of uh, F1 interviews. So I think uh, that point that Akshay uh, raised was very important. Uh, so Akshay's uh, visa uh, was through the F1, uh, like the, through the consular uh, embassy processing, and that that's an option for somebody who's living outside of the US. There's another way that you can obtain your uh, visa, which is more complicated, time-consuming in my opinion, also very expensive, uh, which is through the USCIS change of status uh, by filing your I-539. Uh, and I'm gonna talk about that a little bit, little bit, little bit later uh, in, in, in the session. Um, so um, you need all those documents that Akshay talked about. Uh, in addition to that, you also need your I-94 and and few other documents uh, that we'll touch upon uh, a bit later in the session. Okay, understood, thank you. Um, you guys mentioned scams. I don't wanna just quickly brush over that. What sort of scams should they be looking out for and what type are out there? So a lot of students uh, are approached by folks on various groups. There are WhatsApp groups, there are Telegram groups, because uh, as soon as you find out that there is scarcity of these visa interviews, the student uh, is in pursuit of this visa interview. Uh, they want to get this visa interview as soon as possible so that they get their visa. And they also want to keep some contingency time just in case it, there is any, any up or down, or in case there is a rejection to be very straightforward. Uh, so with this visa interview, when they are in a, a part of these groups, there are a lot of folks reaching out to them uh, that uh, confirming that they will book the slot so that the student does not have to check the portal time and again. And there is a limitation of how many times you can actually access the portal. So you could actually access the portal wherein you can check the slots only five times a day. So because of the scarcity uh, and because of the, the scarcity of the slots, a lot of students assume the fact that once a student who has booked a slot and if that student reschedules it, they will get that slot. Uh, but that's not the case. Uh, the, the appointment has an algorithm behind it and the students are able to see the appointments which are available uh, only five times a day. So it's it's better not to give anyone money to book the slot. It is it is students' responsibility to log into the portal and book the time slot by themselves. Uh, and uh, credentials uh, sharing is is a big big no. Uh, once you give pay someone money, they will ask for your credentials, and that's that's a big big uh, risk that you're taking uh, on your visa. And I can also add to what Akshay said. Um, I was also approached by somebody who offered uh, his service uh, that. Uh, they're going to book uh, an appointment for me um, and I don't have to make any effort, just, just have to pay them in advance. And I asked them questions, how do you have the access to that? Because the US Embassy and um, the consulates, they do not allow any third party to do anything. So they, because all F1 visa application is a simple straightforward process and it's do it yourself. It's not complicated at all. Anybody who visits the website, they're going to get all the information that they need. In case of confusion, they can always reach out to the DSO, which is the ISS office at UB. Um, and I and I was reached out by such uh, people who were scamming students and I asked them questions and, and they ghosted me on their WhatsApp. They blocked me. So I figured that out and it, it was really, really prevalent. And there were so many students who actually fell for that. Um, uh, and I think, I don't, I'm not sure if they even ended up getting a visa. And I think honestly that 
is a really good lesson, right? They said that they'll do it for you. You don't have to do any effort. If it's too good to be true, it's probably not true, right? And that is going to be with visa interviews, getting a magic slot for you, um, a cheaper CVS fee that doesn't exist. Um, when you're coming here, if you get a job offer that you didn't apply for and it's at home for 20 hours a week and you get paid, you know, $50 USD per hour doing mailings for someone, but you just have to give them some money, it's 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 not going to be real. So if it's too good to be true, it's probably not. And if you're ever not sure, contact our office and we can help you figure out if it's legitimate or not. Because in theory, students are going to be in contact with the ISS at this point in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Once you have your I-20 um, from international admissions, you will probably start to hear from us um, about your upcoming semester, about getting access to a lot of your UB uh, accounts, you know, getting connected with UBIT. We start sending out information. You'll start getting emails from our office. Yeah. Okay. And then just to recap, when it comes to the visa process, don't give anyone any money. You can book the appointment yourself. Yeah, the only person who should have money is the direct sites like fmjfee.com or, you know, the, the official U.S. site for your visa pay payment. Okay. Absolutely. Do it yourself. That's, that's the most uh, prominent advice that I can give. Okay, great. Um, so it seems like a common issue with this visa process is the timing of everything and just getting everything done in time to actually go to the school um, for that calendar year. So it seems like a common issue with this whole visa application process is the timing. And a lot of you have mentioned doing things well in advance. So if someone's, say, looking to get uh, into UB for the fall 2024 calendar year, when should they be looking to start this process? And when would be the absolute latest that they can safely start this process and still be admitted? So I can start. Um, so the most important thing is visit the website of the UB, start with your application, because the application process it can take time. You submit your application, um, you have to take either GM, GMAT or GRE, or it might be eligible uh, for waiver, depending on if you meet the conditions. So if your application part is over and you have uh, an admission uh, outcome, like you have been offered an, a place uh, and you accept that offer, um, just start working on your documents, the bank documents and the other things, um, and upload it on the UB portal. Uh, and um, once that happens, keep in touch. Uh, you will be issued um, I-20 within like, I was issued I-20 within a week, uh, but that time frame might change. Um, I think Jenna can respond on that. Um, and once uh, you do that, uh, I'm not sure Akshay can answer on this, but I think uh, when I was applying for US visas and it was like a standard rule back for like before COVID, uh, you could only get an appointment up to 120 days prior to your program start date. So let's say that your program is starting on August 30th, you can only, the earliest appointment that you can get for an interview um, is after, on or after April 30th. But I think that might have changed after COVID. That's that's absolutely right. It still remains the same. Uh, so it is it is advised that uh, students look out for these visa interviews that are post May thirtieth, and uh, they book the earliest slot possible. Because if you worked uh, upon the earliest slot possible, and if you booked that, you have contingency time in your hand, and you can plan things out on your own. Uh, and uh, this, this plays a very pivotal role in the complete journey. And just to mention uh, uh, another step, which is very, very important, uh, is with reference to the upload of the financial form and the supporting financial documents. Uh, every applicant who's applying uh, for uh, their designated program, they can and they definitely can and willingly apply and upload these documents even prior to getting the admit. So the application portal allows you to upload the supporting documents and the financial form even prior to getting the admit. 
So this will expedite the process uh, in a manner that you are well in advance prepared for it. You have the financial funding uh, which is required by the International Admissions Office to authorize you to come down here uh, uh, from the non-regimented pathway of F1 visa. And uh, as soon as you get the admit, as soon as you pay the tuition deposit, your documents are already uploaded and your, uh, your application will be processed straight to the international applications. In that case, you might just get the I-20 within a couple of weeks itself. Yeah, so as far as I understand with admissions, processing time for the I-20 can depend a little bit on the time of year. Obviously, people who are earlier in the cycle might get it a little bit faster. Um, you know, there is generally a crunch time. So, for example, our, our fall admits, um, I know that during the spring semester leading up to that, they try to process a lot of those. Um, as far as the visa itself and planning, you can always go to... Um, the travel.state.gov website. Um, they have information about U.S. visas. You can actually put in the U.S. consular embassy where you're looking to apply, and it will tell you what the wait times are for the different visa categories. Um, they did actually just update the information they did actually just update the window for how far in advance you can apply for a visa. Um, so currently it is up to 365 days in advance of your start of your program. Um, what hasn't changed is once you have the visa, the earliest you can enter the U.S. is up to 30 days before the start of your I-20. Um, so generally, as with many things, the earlier the better. As far as last minute, how late can you go, it's really going to depend on what the wait times are at the embassy or consulate, um, you know, and when can you actually arrive to UB because you want to make sure that you're not late to the start of the semester. Right, that makes sense. Uh, I remember someone in our class was late to the start of the semester. And so that was my question. So, if, for example, if somebody got their visa appointment, like when their MBA advantage is happening, like, like Akshay had, um, uh, how does that work? Like, can they, like, does, does UB allow like deferring um, for a week and they come as a late joiner and join like after the program has started? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are late arrival potential options. Um, there is a deadline um, every semester for that. Uh, usually it's not more than about a week into the start of the term. Um, partially because the later you get, sometimes the more concerns the visa officers may have about your ability to start on time. Obviously, you don't want to start a program late. That can really impact your success moving forward. So um, if you're in a position where you aren't sure if you're going to get a visa you know, appointment on time or you get that slot and you know it's a week before classes, um, I think it's important to have a real conversation with your academic department about, um, you know, do I need a later start? Can I get one? What does that process look like? Because you need late arrival approval um, and in some cases you might need a letter from our office for that as well especially if you have a late visa interview and then of course there is the logistics of booking your flight to get here on sure. time as well yeah so does that deadline for late arrivals at all coincide with the air drop date for classes no, the late arrival um, usually is around the same time as the, the drop ad date, but um, for people who aren't familiar, the drop ad is the last day to add classes or remove classes from your schedule for a semester. Um, so obviously, if you arrive after that date and you haven't enrolled, it's going to be very difficult for you to actually take classes. So that's why it's important to talk to your department, um, because depending on what your date is, um, you may need to be working with your department to have them help you register, um, and that also means you have to work on getting your UB holds lifted from your account. Um, so if you are given late arrival, there's still a lot of work that you're going to be doing even before you get to the U.S. because you want to make sure that you can enroll on time. 
Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, so let's say someone does arrive after, or they wouldn't even arrive if they were past the deadline. They wouldn't even come at all. Yeah. Um, so in that case, they would have to reapply and then shoot to come to UB the that following year. That was my year. case. That was my case. The following fall? Yes. Okay. It can depend on the situation. Depending on your situation, you may need to reapply. It may be possible to do a deferral of your admission to UB. Um, that may impact your visa application differently, but as far as your UB admission, it might be a new admission, or in many cases, if you've been working with your department and letting them know what's going on, it might be a deferral. Okay. And I'm, sh it, I'm sure it might be different with different departments within UB, but for the School of Management, you can't start in the spring semester. You have to start in the next fall semester. Yes, so that was my case exactly. My visa uh, was still processing after the last, like after the deadline uh, in the 2021. Um, and uh, I spoke to the head of the School of Management, uh, the admissions head, and she advised me that uh, she would, because of my application, I, I had a pretty decent profile. Uh, they gave me an option to uh, defer it to the next intake, which is the fall intake. There are no spring intakes. Okay. So you didn't have to reapply. You just deferred it. Yes. Okay. But then you still, on the back end, had to redo all of your visa in my stuff. case, no, because it was still processing. Uh, because I had no uh, outcome on my visa application, it was still processing. Mm -hmm. So um, I could not like restart it since it was still processing. Okay. Yeah, but I think it might be a little bit different for. In in case of uh, F one visa uh, for those who are arriving from India, uh, once so UB by policy allows up to only once uh, to defer your program. Uh, once you have deferred your program, you go through the complete visa application process yet again, and uh, you go through that process, uh, secure your visa. Once you have been deferred, ideally your application would be moved to the subsequent uh, date or the subsequent intake. Uh, for that intake, you have to make sure that if you have not uploaded your supporting financial documents uh, and the financial form till that date, you have to upload it yet again and make sure that you get the new I-20 from the International Admissions Office and then you go for the visa interview. Uh, make sure that you are not using the old I-20 and going for the visa interview because that will be a waste of effort because the last date has already passed and you're taking a visa on the last I-20 which, which will not be valid because you've already passed that date and you'll not be even able to come down here for the classes. All right, so let's talk a little bit more about this visa interview. We've already mentioned the documents that are required and what you need to bring a couple of times. And we've given uh, some resources on where you can find this information. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about what people can expect from the interview and what the different possible outcomes are from that interview. I could definitely reflect upon that. Uh, I've studied the profiles of visa and, uh, officers a lot, uh, specifically upon my rejection uh, the first time out. So uh, it's a very straightforward, it's a very uh, simple process. The, the visa officer is going to decide within 10 to 15 seconds uh, whether to reject or whether to approve uh, your wow. visa. So uh, yes, and it's true, your complete fate depends upon those 10 to 15 seconds. Uh, very rare times it stretches to 20, 20 to 25 seconds. They're going to ask you a couple questions uh, which you should be able to confidently answer. Uh, and the questions are around uh, what school are you going to, what program are you going to pursue, uh, who is funding uh, your program, uh, and uh, if what are your further plans. They make sure that they ask you what are your further plans, and this is the mistake that most of the international students uh, make. Uh, 
while the intention is very clear with the international students that they want to stay here, they want to look for employment and that's the prime reason they're investing so much money to study here. Please take note and we have repeated this sample of times. F1 is a non-immigration category wherein you must be able to prove to them that you will be returning back to your own country no matter what of time because at that point of time you are not sure about seeking h1b sponsorship or your future the f1 visa is all about that stipulated program of the date uh, the start date and the end date and you should be able to establish the fact that you'll be returning back home so if you apply for an f1 visa and you go in and you say after i graduate i'm looking to find a job they're going to reject you they are definitely going to reject you i think that's a red flag right there um i to add to what akshay um so do you want to continue go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. so um i definitely want to add because i have done a lot of research into student visa and i also have had like a b1 b2 visa earlier and i have been visiting us like on from last 20 years my family lives here so um the so there are a lot of times that people create anxiety that, oh, it's a visa interview, you're going to get rejection. Like there are so there are so many resources on websites, uh, on Google, on different places where, because I think in my experience, people are more likely to post their failures than their success. Uh, and that's why you just have like people talking about uh, their failures. Um, but in no way you can ever associate yourself because every individual is an individual and their case is very different. So just because somebody else had a refusal and had a difficult uh, interview experience does not mean that you're also going to have that. I think that's a point to make, uh, to be understood as baseline. Uh, it's very important to like dress up well, make an eye contact, greet the officer because they are human beings. They process so many applications. You are just one application and um, it's important to connect with them. Uh, the only thing that they're trying to establish in that situation is that you are a genuine student. You have only one intent which is to go and study there you're not going to engage in in any illegal activities such as like working off campus without permission or or doing anything else uh, and that you have sufficient funding to uh, support your um, I mean if you do not have enough funding uh, are you gonna come here and not be able to pay for your education I might want have might have to go back they will not they're not going to ruin your life so they would rather reject your visa than um, issue your visa if you do not have uh, sufficient funding sure. and and another way that you prove that you're going to come back to your home country is by establishing that you have enough ties in your home country a uh, way of doing that is definitely like having a family members talking about them uh, your plans after your education but like akshay said it should not take more than 20 25 seconds and those are few questions that are normally asked where the office is going to ask you about who is paying for your education, uh, what kind of education you're going for, uh, and particularly for the MBA program and the MIS and all these programs, these are like really popular programs. So the uh, officers do understand that you're going to be here because there are a lot of students who are coming uh, for these programs because that's like a very industry focused programs. So, I mean, if somebody who is completely like, you know, like they did not have any background uh, and they didn't do any research and they just came there uh, and they started like, um, you know, fidgeting and they're not able to answer the questions, um, you know, on on what they have been asked, um, and they are prolonging the responses, then that's like a red flag. So those are like few things to remember, of course, um, these are just from our experiences, and it could differ from person to person. But I think those things are definitely to be kept in your mind. With your guys' experience, would you say that a good tip is, you know, as long as you're familiar with what you put on your visa application, what your program information is on your I-20, 
maybe why you were interested in that program and what your funding is, if you can confidently speak to those and avoid like one word answers, yes, no, right? Just have a full sentence, like you said, make eye contact. It's easier to say, don't be nervous, but you know, kind of remember that you're being honest. You really are here for a student visa to study. If, if you think those are the kind of the big takeaways for people. Absolutely. You must be able to express your passion towards the program. Why are you taking such a big step about leaving your own country and going miles away from home to pursue something which is so different? Uh, and, you know, you should be able to express your passion out. That's that's pretty much all. You should be very clear in your head why you're taking this step, why you're migrating, and how you're going to manage everything. That's, that's pretty much all. And I also want to add that it's... And, and there are a lot of uh, U.S. Uh, consulate officers who have appeared on different uh, interviews and they have done uh, town hall and they have answered this straight up that it's not documents-based. Like, they have the documents uh, and they rarely ask for any documents other, other than your passport and your I-20 and service fee receipt because those are the important documents that you have to carry. But it's more conversational, more interview-based. And I think in my experience, and I have traveled to about 15 countries, I think U.S. visa interview process is one of the easiest interview processes. If you know what you are going for, if you have genuine intentions, there's no better experience that you can get in terms of uh, your visa interview. And I think genuine is probably the right word, right? You want to make sure that you are presentable and friendly, but you don't have to worry about being someone that you're not, right? You are here to be a student. So. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Those are really great tips. And I think a good takeaway is to simply be prepared. So that when you're sitting there and they ask you a question, you don't have to do any thinking. You already know the answer. Um, so I have a couple of quick questions about that interview process. These visa officers, are they Americans working in other countries? Yes. Okay, so they're American citizens who travel there to do these interviews. Yeah, they are diplomats, basically. Um, they probably have to take some exams, uh, and yeah, they, they work as a foreign resource for, they are, they are all American citizens. Okay. Yeah, they're employees with the Department of State. Okay, yeah. mm -hmm. understood. So in your experience, would you say that they treat people pretty fairly? A hundred percent. Okay. A hundred percent. I don't Good think, uh, like, the, and that's one of the reasons that I'm saying it's one of the easiest visa interview process if you are prepared, if you are a genuine student or a genuine applicant. Uh, if you're just going to go there and, you know, just beat around the bush, uh, I mean, you are applying for a program and you do not even know what courses you are going to take, what your future plans are, then that's a red flag. Like, that's a question that you have to ask yourself. Why am I doing what I'm doing? So um, I think they are 100% fair and I'm glad that they are so accessible, as Jenna mentioned. Uh, um, you can reach out to them, you can email them, you can connect with them on, on the Facebook. They, for most countries, I know for India, but I also know that for most other countries, they do all of these sessions. So just keep in touch with what they are doing. Okay. These are really great tips. So thank you guys. I'm sure the visa interview process is probably the most nerve wracking part of this whole process, but based on what you're saying, it doesn't really have to be. Um, so what happens if the visa is refused or rejected? What happens next? I could definitely reflect upon that. Uh, uh, I have gone through a visa rejection earlier, and uh, and as much as uh, I agree with uh, Shashwat that uh, it's a very simple, straightforward process, uh, and I, I completely want to reinstate the fact that they 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 are completely fair to all the students. Uh, my only advice to those whose visa is being rejected, uh, even in the future, and who's hearing this out, that do not give up. Uh, do not let someone decide your fate within 10 to 15 seconds because you've worked hard for that particular admit and for coming down here for the last two years. 
you go ahead with preparation for your GMAT, GRE or whichever standardized test that you're giving for about a year's time. And then after that, you apply and you go through the admission process. After two years of time, if someone is going to actually reject your visa, uh, do not give up at that point. Uh, pick up yourself, go ahead uh, and book another interview slot. Uh, as much as people would make it a big deal that your visa is rejected, it is not such a big deal. Uh, please keep it very straightforward. Please keep it very, very clean. Just go ahead with another visa interview. Go ahead with your attempt. Be well prepared with uh, all the visa officer questions. Uh, study visa officers very well because there are particular visa officers in particular consulates which ask particular tricky questions. So study the, the, the questions very, very well. There are Facebook groups. There are Telegram groups which you could join to uh, get an idea about what kind of questions uh, do they ask and uh, how you can prepare uh, for them uh, in, in the way that your program is stipulated to uh, but do not give up uh, and do not find try to find out reasons there is no particular reason for your visa rejection it's sheer luck and uh, even you could imagine that you cannot decide someone's fate within 10 to 15 seconds it's just a judgment by the visa officer and there is nothing wrong with it they are absolutely fair and they they will they will definitely not do anything wrong at that point of time in that particular interview they felt that you could not establish the fact that either you're going to return back to your own country or you have enough financial documents and that is the prime reason you were rejected uh, there is there is no other reason to it now when you were rejected did they give you a paper or any explanation as to why you were rejected yes so they gave me a reason of 214 uh, they handed me a, a receipt of 214 which says that i have not established the uh, enough evidence of returning back to my own country uh, and that's that's the only reason that they rejected so yeah so like akshay mentioned uh, and what better and bigger example than Akshay himself that um, his visa got rejected and he happened to call me and he was really, really sad. Um, and I said that do not give up, uh, hold your chin up and keep trying. Uh, and 20 days later, he applies for a visa and he gets the approval and he made it to the program and he's, he's so successful here as an international student. Um, this serves as an example that if people come and tell you that if your visa was rejected the first time, it's gonna get rejected the second time, it's not. It will never be rejected. They are, they are human beings and they're no better people to process your visa, uh, visa than those officers. So even if an officer has incorrectly assessed your profile, it's all on their notes when they are putting your, when they are have, taking your interview. Um, that note, uh, note is actually accessible to the next officer. And I think the next officer is going to ask you questions based on that note. And if you know where you went wrong, um, Please, please do not come with the same mistakes. Uh, review, reflect, know where you could have possibly gone. Talk to people who have had uh, rejections in the past uh, um, or, or, or approval and what worked for them. Um, and just take it easy and apply. There have been people who have whose visa was rejected like two times in one season and they got it the third time. So just stay positive. Yeah, I think that be prepared um, piece of advice comes here too, right? Because... Um, you know, just because you're rejected, it's important to know why you were rejected because when you do apply, you need to be able to say what changed since your last interview, right? Um, what information are you bringing that's different? Um, or, you know, you are more prepared on how to answer that question next, this second time around. 
it is generally true that the more times you are rejected, the harder it becomes each time. Um, but a single visa rejection should not necessarily be, you know, the end of the road for you by any means. It's really about, like you said, reflection, looking at the reason that you were given on that paper so that way you can prepare your next application and then speak to, you know, what is more complete or what you have changed since the last time you applied. Okay, really great advice. So if they're rejected, the UB, everything on the UB side is basically just on hold until that visa gets approved. Yeah, so we, we you know, UB will give the I-20, um, but the visa stamp is what you need to actually enter the U.S. Um, so until you have that visa, um, you are not able to come for your studies. Uh, if you are rejected or your visa is put in administrative processing, it's really important that you reach out to your department and let them know what's going on. Um, you know, if there is something that we could potentially someone at UB help either with guidance or planning, depending on if it's really close to the semester, what maybe your next steps might be for timing purposes, you know, talk to your department, talk to ISS. Um, but unfortunately, the Department of State, that visa um, really is, is a make or break point for being able to enter the U.S. Okay, great. Um, and then once the visa is approved, so what are the next steps after that? Yeah, so once the visa is approved, um, hopefully you've already paid your CBIS fee, but if not, make sure you do that. Um, and you'll wanna make sure that you collect your documents. Um, as far as getting ready for coming to UB, you'll be getting emails from your department, you'll be getting emails from ISS. Um, if you have not yet at this point started your international student check-in, you can definitely do that. Um, you can start before you get the visa, absolutely. You start uploading your passport, your I-20, but once you have that visa, you are going to want to go to our system. It's called UB Global. Um, you can find it on our website. You'll definitely be getting emails about it from us um, and upload a copy of that visa stamp for us. That lets you ISS and your department know that you really do intend to come to UB. The bonus also in the case of getting moving forward in the process is once you upload your visa stamp with us, we will lift the IS hold on your account. Um, so if you've resolved any other holds, once that hold is removed, then you can really start working with your department for class enrollment for the semester. Um, so once you have the visa stamp, make sure you are uploading it um, on our ISS UB Global website. Um, and if denied, again, obviously contact your office and let us know. Okay, great. So other than the traditional route of applying for a visa, are there any other ways that international students can get one? Yeah, so it, it is possible to do um, a change of status uh, with USCIS if you are already in the United States. Um, this is something through a form called I-539. In that situation, um, you would likely come talk to ISS if you are a current UB student in a different visa category, um, or if you're incoming but you're in a different visa category in the United States. Um, you come talk to us about general eligibility. Um, if you are eligible for the I-20, our office would likely issue it to you. But then at that point, you know, we would recommend that you work with an attorney. That's not a process that we're necessarily trained on, but it's something that you've experienced. Yeah, so I would like to share my experience. Um, and to start with, I-539 is a time-consuming, um, more expensive, and um, it's, a, it's a process that can potentially result in, in failure, but um, you only take that step uh, if that's really, really needed. And that's the criteria, I'm gonna talk about that. So I got admission in the year 2020, uh, 2021, uh, January, and I was originally a member of the UBMBA class of 2023, uh, and I was, I was supposed to start in August of 2022. 
uh, sorry, August of 2021. Um, and Due to travel restrictions and increasing COVID cases, um, I wasn't able to travel out of the U.S. Uh, because I was visiting my family. So the only option that I could apply uh, for my F1 visa was through the USCIS I-539 change of status. So basically how that process works is um, uh, you have to be in, in the U.S. legally uh, on a non-immigrant visa and, um, and you have to sufficiently establish the reason why you are opting for this route and why you could not just travel out of the U.S. and apply for consular processing. So I had a case uh, because um, um, like because of travel restrictions and limited in interview appointments um, in, uh, in India and other countries. So I opted for this one. So how this works is um, on your existing um, immigrant, uh, non-immigrant visa, like for example, I was on a visitor visa, which was B2, um, you first have to apply for an extension of your uh, status. Um, and you do that by applying uh, for, uh, by applying um, with form I-539. Once you submit that application, you also apply for a change of status. Uh, so you're requesting the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services to change your status from B2 to F1 uh, for reasons uh, in your application wherein um, in my case, I stated that I wasn't able to travel because of uh, travel restrictions and things like that. Originally, before COVID, the processing time would be somewhere like three to six months. Um, but because of COVID, there were backlog of applications uh, and visa officers were really, really overwhelmed, burdened with so many applications that the processing times increased all over the U.S. And there are seven um, e uh, visa offices in the U.S. that can potentially pick your application. One is in Vermont, the other one is in California, then Nebraska, um, then Potomac, uh, and a few other places. One is in Texas, too. Uh, but you, you do not have a pref preference. Like, that's just system generated. Like, you can stay in, like, I was living in Pennsylvania State, and I applied, and my uh, location was Vermont. So the processing times for that was uh, 12 to 20 months. So it would take 12 months uh, minimum uh, because of, for obvious reasons. Sure. Um, so I applied um, and, uh, and I would strongly, like Jenna said, I would strongly encourage people to connect with an immigration attorney because a licensed immigration attorney would have the knowledge of the technicalities and they can work on your applications better. And that's what increases your uh, visa fee because the application cost is a lot uh, and also you're going to pay for your immigration uh, uh, consult, uh, attorney. Um, and, and on top of that, there are other challenges too. Um, so while you're, um, so in my case, I applied for the uh, change of status um, and six months had passed, uh, I had no update. I reached out to the USCIS and they said that you are still within your processing time so we cannot uh, give you more information. You do have the option to expedite I did try that. I reached out to the senator of Pennsylvania with the U.S. Uh, federal legislature, and another one was the congressman. Uh, they helped me. They reached out to the USCIS. But even with their involvement, it was of no use because it wouldn't have been fair for the uh, app officers to pick my applications while they already have applications from some from previous years because it would be unfair to those candidates, and that makes sense. Yeah. So as a result, um, uh, my I went past the the deadline the last day that I couldn't join as a late latecomer um, and as a result I had to defer from fall in 2021 intake to fall 2022 intake and I became a member of the class of 2024. Um, so <clears throat> 
during the extension process, um, once, once you apply, um, there is a website, uh, I'm forgetting the exact website, um, the USAS website basically, it gives you all the information. Um, you can either apply online or you can do it physically, uh, but if you have your immigration attorney, a licensed immigration attorney, they can handle everything on, on your behalf. In terms of documents, you need all the documents. Uh, um, and in addition to those documents that Akshay was talking about, like the um, uh, valid passport and uh, financial documents, you also need uh, I-94 and your uh, your current, your visa status. And you also have to write a letter of intent stating that uh, this was the reason that you were not able to go back to the country and you plan on studying. Uh, I wrote that this was my plan. Uh, and yeah, after I'm finishing my studies, I'm going to go back to my home country and work there. Uh, this will help me. Uh, get more, uh, you know, skills. Uh, so my application was processed um, in the 16th month. I applied in January, actually February 2021, 20, 2021 um, and I got my visa um, in July 2022, just a month before. Uh, and even July for the fall uh, 2022 intake, I was really pessimistic because there was no hope um, and I reached out to many people and because it's an internal processing, nobody could influence that. Um, so to put in summary, uh, you do have that option, but if you can travel out of the US and get your visa through F1 consular processing, uh, you should go for that one. Only in very extreme cases, you, you are able to, to get your F1 visa through change of status. So the reason yours took so long is because you had to do the change of status, and you weren't able to travel out of the country to start from scratch and file for the F-1 visa. Yes, that's a great point that you brought up, and, and it skipped my mind. So there's another disadvantage to this. Um, so in, in Naksha's case, he has a visa stamp on his passport, so he can easily travel out of the U.S., but in my case, I do not have a visa sta uh, stamp on my passport. I just have a document that states that I'm a legal uh, student here, and I'm pursuing my MBA program at UB. Uh, but as soon as I move out of the U.S. for any reason whatsoever, um, I'll have to go through the same uh, process that Akshay had to go through and get a visa stamped on my passport before I can return. Okay. Yeah. So my application would be abandoned. So not only is it um, is it an expensive, time-consuming, and complicated process, but it also put restrictions in your ability to travel out of the U.S. Okay. Um, so we've touched on documents a lot throughout this podcast. Um, I just think it'd be good to go over them one more time. What sort of documents are students required to carry once they're actually traveling into the U.S. and going through customs at an airport? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's a couple of documents that are required, and then there are a couple additional documents that we recommend students carry. So um, first and foremost, you always have to have a valid unexpired passport. Um, in that passport likely is going to be your unexpired F-1 visa stamp. The only exception would be if you are a Canadian citizen, you don't need that. Um, but for the vast majority of our students, the F-1 visa stamp is a requirement. Um, in addition to that, you'll have your I-20 with you. Make sure that it's printed, have it in hand, Border agent, it does not want to look at your phone. Um, make sure you've signed your I-20 on the bottom of page one. If you're an incoming student, it will not have a signature on page two. Um, but if you are a current enrolled student traveling, you always need to make sure that you have a travel signature from your DSO on page two. Um, that's valid for 12 calendar months. So um, once you're here, you're settled. Um, if you think you're going to be traveling, you know, I'd recommend go ahead and requesting that signature with us at our office. And so that way you just have it for, you know, any travels during the holidays. 
Um, in addition to those required documents, we also recommend carrying a copy of your SEVIS fee receipt, especially if you're a newly entering student. Um, we also recommend carrying copies of your financial documentation um, and proof of enrollment if you are enrolled. Generally, CBP does not ask to see those things, but if there are questions, it's always better to have those documents and, and be prepared um, just to pass them over to make things smoother for you. Um, Speaking of CBP, a question that we get a lot from students is they're worried about the visa stamp, uh, rather the, the entry stamp um, in their passport. Um, when you enter, you are admitted to the U.S. in your status, um, and a document called an I-94, which has been mentioned, is created for you. Um, that is the proof that you were legally admitted to the U.S. in your current status. Um, a lot of times in the past, they would also stamp physically in your passport and write you know, something in there. Um, they are phasing that out. Most places don't have it, so sometimes students call us. They're worried they didn't get that stamp, but it's nothing that you need to worry about. Um, the most important thing is once you're here, you see that you have that I-94. So right after you enter, um, I would recommend going to CBP's website. Um, and you can just Google I-94, it comes right up, um, and get a copy of that. It's an electronic document, but you're going to want to save that as a PDF for yourself. Um, you'll need it for ISS check-in. It's what we need to complete your requirements um, and for you to prove that you were admitted in the correct status. Every once in a while, Customs and Border Protection makes some mistakes, so take a look at your I-94. If there's issues, um, you know, you'll need to reach out to them to get that corrected, so that way everything is in alignment with your record itself. Um, but again, we need that for your last step of officially reporting that you are entered the U.S. as an F-1 student at UB. Okay, so the I-94 is the final proof that you've gone through the process and everything has been done legally, and you're all set. I would also add to that, um, as an international student, and that comes from my own experience, <clears throat> and I think Akshay can also um, share his experience, you should always have copies of your passport, your visa, your I-20, and your I-94, because these are the four documents that you are gonna need everywhere here, for any, even for a banker, opening a bank account, applying for a social security number, or even getting a, a state ID or a driver's license here. Uh, and, it's, and I would recommend personally that you should definitely do get your state uh, ID because that's one of the questions that I get in my uh, student ambassador hours from prospective students. Uh, having a state ID would uh, do away the need of always carrying your passport, especially if you want to go to travel anywhere within the US or want to go to a restaurant where alcohol is being served or anything like that. So uh, always, always have these copies uh, and do apply for a state ID or a driver's license. It is also highly recommended that every student keeps the copies of their I-20, of all the revisions of the I-20, because I-20 goes through a lot of revisions every time you have a travel endorsement, every time you get a CPT, there are a lot of revisions to I-20, so it is super, super important that the candidate keeps all the copies of their I-20, all the revisions of the versions of I-20, uh, so that when they're applying for the H-1B sponsorship or when they're applying for a green card, they will have these records stored with them, preferably have a backup of it also. Uh, stored on some cloud so that it is accessible by everyone and anyone uh, especially with your credentials and all so that you could use it in case someone else wants to access it uh, uh, to facilitate any of your journeys. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. It looks like just a piece of paper, but it is a printout from a government database with your specific information. So um, it is part of your immigration records. And so every time you get a new I-20, you are going to want to make sure that you keep copies. It's nice now because we can 
you know, digitally sign and email it so you will already have the digital copy. Um, so, you know, in the past it was always printed in paper and so having students scan it was our, our old recommendation. But these days, you know, you'll get the email, whether you save those emails for yourself in a folder or you create, you know, a secure box folder or something where you can access those um, because you will probably need them for some point in the future. And the same is true with the I-94. Every time you enter the U.S., you'll be getting an I-94 unless you did a short trip across the land border. So, for example, if you go to Toronto for like a weekend, you may not get a new one, you know, but in most cases, every time you come in, you get a new I-94. Um, and those are not saved forever on CBP's website. So each time you re-enter, my recommendation would be to go to the website, save a copy of that I-94, put it with your records um, so that you have all of them handy. Okay. Really great point. Thank you. So we get a lot of questions about campus jobs and assistantships um, while uh, students are going to UB. Um, so as international students, how many hours a week can they work? Yeah, so by regulation, international students are limited to 20 hours per week during required semesters. So during a fall and a spring semester, you are limited to 20 hours of work a week. Additionally, if summer term is your first or final term, that 20 hour limit also applies. During the breaks, so during winter break or summer, if it's not your final term, um, the 20 hour limit is not applicable. Um, your on-campus employer may still have their own working limits, um, but basically during the academic year, you're limited to 20 hours of work per week. Okay. Do you guys have any tips about scams? I know personally I get tons of emails about on-campus work from home jobs. So personally, do not go through any mail which is not uh, from the buffalo.edu domain uh, because uh, every time you receive a tons of emails, as soon as your buffalo.edu email is created, you would be receiving a ton of emails from uh, spam email IDs. So check for the domain. That's, that's the first thing to check for spam. Uh, secondly, go through the Handshake and BizLink platform for any on-campus employment opportunities. Uh, they, they are the official platforms wherein all the openings are actually released. Uh, and this, this comes more than just often. Uh, every time a student is coming down here, they want they're in pursuit of a on-campus opportunity. I think one of the platform which is Handshake is, is the official platform. Another platform where they can apply is the CDS, that is the campus dining, uh, where a lot of uh, international students apply for uh, on-campus part-time jobs where they can uh, work for 20 hours, uh, up to 20 hours uh, per week. Yeah, you know, when you get emails, always kind of be mindful. Is this something that you started? Did you apply somewhere? If not, you know, kind of look at it. Other things to look at is the sender email different from the email and the signature. Um, are there a million people on this email, especially if they all are listed alphabetically? Um, sometimes what we'll see from students who forward scam emails to us is someone will have gone to like the UB directory, for example, and they'll just copy and paste emails from, you know, section A, right? Everyone with the last name of AA through, you know, AL and everyone's on that email. Um, that's another red flag to look out for, um, you know, especially for international students, something to keep in mind. And I think we're going to touch on this is the type of work that you do. There are limitations to. Um, so if it's not a specific on-campus employer, which you can find through Handshake and BizLink, and there are resources through, um, you know, the Career Resource Center to connect you with that. Um, if it's an off-campus job, you probably need specific work authorization for it. Um, so even if it's someone claiming to be a UB professor, but it's for their personal business, you can't even do that job even if it's real. Um, so if you're ever not sure, you know, 
talk to your department, come talk to ISS. We have a page about scams um, because, you know, they, they, they do get the, your emails and, and they'll reach out to you. Okay. Yeah, great points. So key takeaways there are make sure you're looking for jobs through official channels like Handshake, BizLink, and the Campus Dining website. And if a job is too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. Investigate. Be careful. And I would also say that in my experience, I work on campus. Um, for most departments, um, they do not only advertise their jobs on Handshake uh, or BizLink or the places like uh, Exchange and I mentioned, but also they would email you. Like we get so many emails for on-campus jobs and there are so many on-campus jobs, so there will always be a, an opportunity for international students to work on campus while they are at UB. So are international students required to have jobs to maintain status? No, it's not a status requirement. Um, obviously, there are options if it's something that you're interested in. Um, but for F1 status, uh, of all the requirements out there, work is not one of them. So if it's not something that you're interested in doing, especially if you know you, know, you don't necessarily need the additional cash or fund money and you want to focus on your education, you can absolutely do that. Okay. And then for those who want to get a job, are they required to have a social security number? So you don't need a social security number right away. Actually, as an F1 student, you're not even eligible to request a social security number until you have that job first. So the job offer is the first step. Um, once you have that, you would work with ISS to get a letter confirming your F1 status, and then you would go in and apply for that with the Social Security Administration. Um, so the job offer is actually the first step. Now, if it's a paid job, you probably do need an SSN to be part of payroll, um, but the process starts with the job offer itself. So and just to quickly add to what she said, um, so uh, so you need social security number for a job here. Like you would need that, uh, um, and you can get that once you have the job offer. But let's say that you do not have a job offer, and you have some social security requirement for, let's say that you want to apply for a driver's license or a state ID. You can get a social security ineligibility letter from ISS that you can carry uh, and you can do your work, all the work that can. Uh, you need to produce that letter to the SSN office and they are going to issue you another letter uh, and you can use that letter uh, for any place that requires social security number just to state that you, you do not legally have a social security number because of your international student visa status. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, you know, there are certain things that might ask for a social security number, like opening a bank account, um, and the letter of ineligibility from the SSA would actually take the place of that. Um, applying for a job that you don't intend to work for specifically to get a social security number is something that I would avoid. Um, it doesn't look good on you. It makes it harder to find a job for you in the future, but it also impacts other future students who are applying for jobs. Um, so, you know, if you need an SSN for work, that's absolutely part of the process. But but in a lot of cases where you don't need an SSN, that letter of ineligibility takes the place. Okay. So to recap, F1 um, visa students need a job offer, then they can get a social security number, and then, then they can get paid. That's pretty much it, yeah. But if they have a social security ineligibility letter, then they can get paid right away. So the ineligibility letter is not really related to jobs because if you have a job, then you can get the social security number. Okay. Um, if you don't have a job and so that you're not eligible for that number itself, but let's say the DMV is asking for it, right? Um, you can go to the social security office to get that ineligibility letter and it basically takes the place of the SSN in whatever other process you're doing. Okay. So like if you're going for a driver's license, instead of having the SSN number, you would have the SSN letter of ineligibility. But if it's a paid position, you do need a social security number. Correct. Okay. And then what's the time frame as far as 
job offer to actually getting paid? Because I know a lot of students are concerned with money. Yeah, absolutely. So from start to finish, time you get the job offer, you'll get the letter from our office, you'll apply with the SSN. They can take two to four weeks. So probably start to finish, you're looking at a month and a half, two months is probably a realistic expectation. Okay. All right, so let's talk about off-campus work. Can international students work off-campus during the semester? And then what about on summer or winter breaks? Yeah, so off-campus employment might be possible, but it always requires prior authorization. Um, if you are an F1 student, you can work on campus. You don't need special work permission from ISS. It's just part of your status benefits. Um, but if you are looking to do an internship, for example, um, you would need work authorization. Um, basically, that is either going to be CPT, which stands for Curricular Practical Training, um, or OPT, which stands for Optional Practical Training. There is another type of work authorization called economic hardship, but it's pretty rare. Um, that one is for extreme circumstances. Um, if something is outside of your control, like you know economic collapse in your home country, that kind of thing. The vast majority of our students, if you are doing off-campus work, um, especially if it's during the degree program, you're looking at curricular practical training, um, which is something that you would apply first with your department to get the, the department process, and then with ISS to get your work authorization and I-20. Um, this sort of off-campus work authorization requirement is, is part of regulations. This is not a UB policy. Um, this is an F1 policy because your primary reason for being in the U.S. in F1 status is to study. Um, so there are ways to get off-campus work experience, but you just need to have the permission to do that before you can actually start any of the work. Uh, additionally, if you're ever not sure if you have an opportunity, if it needs off-campus authorization or not, you can always come talk to ISS. Um, sometimes the definition of what is or is not on campus, um, you know, can be a little bit murky, right? If it is sure. on campus, you know, if you're serving students and it's paid through a UB, you know, source, like a student assistant position, a graduate assistant position, those are very clearly on-campus positions, right? Working with campus dining and shops, it's an on-campus job. Um, but perhaps if it's for a UB entity, but you're working remotely, does that count or not? Or if you're working for a company that's tied to UB, but they're not UB, you know, bring those to ISS. We can help you figure out if you need work authorization or not. And I just have a quick question to ask. So, for example, if an international student doesn't have an internship during the break, but they get an offer to work off campus, let's say work at a restaurant or a coffee shop, uh, are they eligible to work there during the break? And how does that work? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the answer is probably no. So um, with the uh, CPT and OPT work authorization types, the work always has to be directly related to your field of study. Um, and CPT, which I'll get into in a second, has to be tied to your curriculum too. So doing work that's not tied to your degree, um, not related to your degree, really would only be limited to that economic hardship that I talked about. So for 99% of the students that are here, um, you're not going to be, you know, working off campus at a restaurant. Um, it's going to be, you know, something related to your degree. But we can do that on campus, like working on uh, in a restaurant or as a campus dining. We can definitely work there uh, as yeah. long as it's an on-campus Exactly, as oh. long as it's on-campus. So on-campus work is a little bit different. It doesn't have to be tied to your degree, mm -hmm. right? So whether it's campus dining at shops, the UB Commons, UB Bookstore, right? That, that can happen no matter what. It's part of being a UB student, right? Um, it's that off-campus work where that tied to your degree program requirement comes into play. So it sounds like for off-campus work, the key here is that it has to be tied to your degree. 
um, which is what CPT is. Can you explain a little bit more what CPT work authorization is? Yeah, so CPT, Curricular Practical Training, um, is a type of work authorization that is meant to allow students to be able to get experience um, outside of the campus in something that will help them complete their degree requirements. So a lot of programs, especially a lot of graduate programs, may have internship or co-op or practicum components. Um, and generally, that requires you know, working with an, a U.S. company or you know, U.S. partnership organization something. Um, so in order to be able to fulfill that requirement, um, you would be working with your department, probably enrolling in a specific internship type course, and then working with us to get that authorization. Um, so in order to be eligible for CPT, you have to first have been enrolled for one academic year, so one fall and one spring semester. There are some exceptions, but for the vast majority of our students, you'll be here for a year. So if you're a fall entering student, likely the earliest you could apply for CPT would be summer of the following year because you'll have completed one fall and one spring semester. Um, so you talk to your department, that's always the first step to see does the department support CPT? Most do um, because you'll need to have that CPT course and you'll be working with your department to fill out some forms to let us know how the work is related to your field of study. So because it has to be tied to your curriculum, part of what ISS needs to see before we can approve the authorization is what were your goals and objectives? How is this tied to your curriculum, right? Are there courses that this is related to? Are you doing a thesis and this is part of a project that you're a part of? Um, so kind of outlining that information and then we will input the information into CVIS and get you a new I-20 that has that work authorization on there. Um, you know, CPT is a process. So if it's something that you know that you're gonna be doing, you know, you know that you're looking for internships in the summer, I would recommend seeking out information from our website, talking to your department as soon as possible. Again, being prepared, being, you know, ahead of the, of the plan, um, you know, knowing what your deadlines are can be really important. So I'm not sure about other programs, but I know the MBA program definitely has an internship requirement, especially for those students with less work experience. So if they have CPT work approval for that summer internship, does that company also have to sponsor them in order to do that internship, or is that just for post-graduation work? Yeah, so visa sponsorship would be entirely separate. So on CPT, you're using your F1 work authorization to do the work. So they don't need to do any visa sponsorship for you. Um, likely they will ask for your CPT I-20, that's proof of your authorization. Um, they'll ask for a copy of your I-94. Again, they need to make sure that you were here admitted, um, in addition to the other sort of usual onboarding forms that you might get. Um, I do also want to mention that CPT is semester specific. Um, so if you have a, an internship that maybe goes from summer in through fall, you would be applying for both a summer CPT with ISS and a fall CPT. Each time you're doing CPT, it has to be for a course. Um, and so sometimes students ask, how many CPTs can I do? And part of that answer is, you know, talking to your department to see how many times can you take an internship course. Sometimes there's a, num a maximum number of times that you can do that. But usually most students can, you know, do the CPT that they want and need to do. Okay. So if you have CPT for a summer internship, you can't just stay at that company through the fall semester. Correct. You can only work as long as you've been authorized, and those dates are going to be on your I-20. So if you have a summer CPT, let's say it went through mid-August, and they offered to extend you through the fall, you would want to talk to your department right away, get enrolled for that fall CPT course, and then submit the new application with us to get the new I-20 with the additional fall dates on there. It's also employer-specific. Um, so again, part of your CPT is 
the goals and objectives and how you're you know meeting the requirements and, and getting the experience you need for your graduation requirements. Um, so part of what happens is we need the offer letter from your CPT employer and we put that employer and the site information into CVIS. Um, so when you're applying for CPT you know and you have that internship offer it's important to be mindful that you can't just swap if you get a better one. Um, so again planning comes into, into a lot of important parts here. Sure. I have uh, two quick questions. Um, so for CPT approval, who approves it and like how long does it take? What is the processing time for that? Yeah, so CPT approval goes through ISS. Um, of course, the first step is your department, making sure that they feel that it is you know, academic in nature and tied to the curriculum. Your department knows the curriculum better than ISS does, so we always defer to them on that. But once you have department approval, the application goes to ISS through UB Global, the same system as your ISS check-in. Um, and so our processing time right now is 12 to 15 business days. Mm -hmm. If we can get it done sooner, we absolutely will. We know that CPT is time sensitive. We know that it can be really challenging to find internships, and we know how excited people are to start. So um, if we can get it done faster, we will. But at this point, you know, we get so many, which is good because people are getting internships, um, but we can't expedite. Okay. And the another question is, um, for example, if an international student gets an opportunity to work more like a freelance or a volunteering role, um, it's not a paid job uh, during their summer break or during their semesters, uh, do they need CPT for that or can they work as a freelancer like if and, and there's no paid component to that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, for volunteer, um, if it's at all related to your field of study, you do want CPT for it um, because it could be considered work even if you're not being paid for it. Um, so if you're looking at other future benefits like applying for OPT after you graduate or you know future visa sponsorship, change of status, a lot of times they look at your employment history, what's on your resume, what's on your LinkedIn. Um, if they ever see anything that could be construed as work, even if you didn't get pay for it, you got another benefit, Maybe you got um, experience or, you know, stock or something like that. Um, if you received a benefit, it could be considered employment. So you never want to have work without work authorization. So if it's at all related to your field of study, you're going to want CPT for it. Generally, the only kind of off-campus volunteering that you can do without special authorization is really general humanitarian work, right? So um, doing a soup kitchen, an animal shelter, you know, a really popular uh, fundraising event in Buffalo is Ride for Roswell. It's a cancer charity, you know, fundraising event. Things that really are just community-based, you don't need work authorization for, but unpaid internships, freelancing experiences, you do need work for. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so the last topic I'd like to touch on while I have you all here in the studio is the STEM program. We mentioned it a couple times. I just think we should go through and clarify what it is and how it's different to the typical MBA program. Um, so all of the programs that are offered by School of Management, all full-time degree programs, the uh, Business Analytics, the MSBA, uh, the Management Information Systems, and the MBA program, all three of them are STEM uh, designated. Uh, so what that does is that, so there are two benefits that I see in my experience. Um, I've interviewed for my internship uh, at quite a few companies um, and um, com employers, they, they kind of favor and, and they have a more positive outlook towards a candidate um, who has a STEM degree be simply because it's more rigorous and um, yeah, you're learning more on the tech side uh, and different uh, parts of that, of course. Uh, um, that and also uh, your work status. So you can, uh, as an international student, uh, after your graduate degree program, um, you are allowed to work in the U.S. for 12 months on your OPT, which is your optional practical training. But once that period comes 
close with your STEM designation of your degree program, you are eligible to apply for another 24 months of extension. Uh, that would uh, allow you to easily work uh, in the U.S. for 30, 36 months. Total. Uh, total, yeah. And that also is taken favorably, favorably by the employers because if an employer sees that you have the ability to work in the U.S. for a longer period of time, uh, that can work in your favor when you start applying for jobs. So that's like those are like two important benefits. Um, yeah, those are huge benefits. Yeah, and just to mention, um, you know, it's probably early for some people to start thinking about it, but never too early to start looking into it. And when it comes to applying for OPT and then later on the STEM extension for your OPT, those are applications where you would work with ISS to get a new I-20, but then the application itself goes to the USCIS. So the same government agency that processes like change of status applications, they are also the ones processing these work benefits for after graduation work. So, um, you know, there is a longer processing times, let's say. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so it sounds like STEM has a lot of benefits, but is there anything different about it to the normal degree program? So, for example, the normal degree program is 60 credits. Do you have to take more credits to get a STEM version? So that's a great question. Um, that's another reason why I chose UB. So studying at UB, uh, you just need 60 credits to graduate. But you, if for a reason, like you have a concentration requirement, for example, I'm concentrating in data analytics, marketing, information systems, I am going to go past 60 credits. So I'm going to be somewhere around 66 credits. Uh, the good thing about UB is that anything over 60 credits, you don't have to pay uh, any additional tuition fee. That is covered in your overall tuition fees. Uh, as of today, the policy that is as of today. Um, so for STEM requirement, you need to have uh, 21 uh, credits worth of STEM approved courses within your concentration. Okay. Uh, a list of that would be provided to you, you or any student uh, by your academic advisor and you can always connect to your academic department to understand more about it. Okay, great. These list of courses are also available as part of the curriculum under the pro the designated program. There are there is MBA, there is uh, MFIN, there is MIS, MSBA. So uh, if if you go and land on the admissions page, uh, you will find the curriculum page uh, on the left tab. Uh, students can just open the curriculum. They can have a look at the subjects and they can delve deep into what these subjects are, deep dive into and what what kind of aspects that they will be touching upon. Great. Um, I think that's all we have to, for today. Yeah, I just want to add that, you know, if anyone has any questions about the, you know, F1 regulation side of the house, they can always come check our website. Again, buffalo.edu backslash ISS. Um, we have some information sessions that are recorded. We do a couple every semester. But if you're interested in CPT, um, we have one that will come up on travel, OPT. You can always either join us on them. We'll put them out in our social media and our bulletin. So as you come, you'll get our emails. Don't worry. Um, or you can always find them on the websites too. Uh, I can also say uh, I am a Dean Student Ambassador for the MBA program. So my role as an ambassador is to connect with all the prospective students and answer their questions that they may have about the application, visas, or anything. And much like like Akshay, um, we both are the student ambassadors. So um, I would strongly encourage uh, anybody who's listening to this, if, if you want to connect with a fellow stu student who's already studying, who's been through that process, you can connect with us on the website. Uh, all of our information is available on the UB website, um, and we'll be very happy to answer any of your questions that you might have. And that's Shashwat or Akshay. Yeah, that's Shashwat or Akshay. And there are other ambassadors too. There are a list of ambassadors, and you, can, you have the ability to choose any ambassador that you want to connect with. Lastly, if you would like to get in touch with the admissions office uh, with reference to your application instructions, with reference to any aspect or any requirement in your application which you want to 
deep upon or you need more information just uh, write an email to som-apps at the rate buffalo.edu I'll repeat that it is som-apps at the rate buffalo.edu okay great Jenna thank you so much for being here yeah thank you guys for having me and thank you Patrick for hosting this <laughs> Thank you for listening. Again, my name is Patrick Lagerin, one of the hosts of the Manageable podcast. Be on the lookout for part two, where we talk to Jenna from the ISS again, as well as an alumni who's currently working on an H-1B visa post-graduation. 